in December. The only time we won't have Bible class is on December the 6th. I think that's what it is, the Tuesday, the first Tuesday in December when uh, I, I and all of the AV equipment will be up at um, uh, the pre-trib rapture study group meeting in Dallas. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We'll have a few moments of... uh, uh, Silent prayer so that you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus on uh, what we're going to learn this evening, what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word. We're thankful that your word informs us and guides us in so many different areas, that it is your word that enables us to understand reality as you have created it, understand who you are and who we are. Father, enables us to fully understand what you have done in terms of our salvation, in terms of all of the different aspects of our salvation to understand how vast and how extensive and how complex that salvation was that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us, recognizing that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to ever uh, gain your favor, that it could only be done on the basis of your grace and your provision of someone who could pay the penalty for us and provide us with the perfect righteousness. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Romans and our study of justification, we pray that you would help us to uh, come to a greater, clearer understanding of this so critical doctrine that is at the foundation of our entire uh, salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, as we get started on in Romans chapter 4, verse 13 this evening, I wanted to know if anybody here can tell me where the first place, first time anybody mentioned justification in the entire Bible. It's in the, I'll give you a hint, it's in the oldest book in the Bible. Which one is that? Job, that's right. It's in Job. But before we get there, I was reading this morning, and... Um, my first verse, I thought this is a verse that every school teacher ought to put up on their bulletin board, over the door, everything. It is 
Proverbs 12.1. And I checked this over again, several other translations, because there's a word in here that many parents have told their children to never use. God the Holy Spirit used the Hebrew version of it, and in almost every translation they translate it the same way because that's what it means in Hebrew. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> so I just thought that was a nice insight from, uh, from Proverbs. Job 19, I mean, Job 9, 2. Job says, truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous? Or it could be also translated, how can a man be justified before God? Now, this is it's a couple of interesting things about this, this verse. The context is that he's responding to one of his friends who has uh, laid out a case for why... Um, why he has gone through his the suffering that he has, and that's what he has responded to. And so the real question, the, the, the question he asks really gets at the heart of the matter is how can a creature that is a fallen creature be justified before God? I looked this up in the uh, Jewish translation, the JPS, that stands for the Jewish Publication Society, 1917 translation to see how they handle this just out of curiosity, to see how uh, the Jewish translators would handle the concept of justification in the Old Testament. And in the 1917 uh, JPS translation, which uh, they're usually referred to as the Tanakh, which is an uh, acronym for TNK, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the three divisions of the uh, Hebrew Scripture, and they translated it very similarly. Of a truth, I know that it is so, and how can a man be just with God? What's interesting is the 1985 Tanakh translation changes it. And there's, over the history, and I studied, we, we studied some of this last year, but over the history of Judaism, there have been little minor changes here and there on the way they've translated some scriptures because they they don't like the... Christian implication in some passages. So uh, Job 9.2, along with uh, Genesis 15.6, really do emphasize this concept of justification, and especially Genesis 15.6, that justification is by faith. And we've gone over that extensively, but in the 1985 uh, Tanakh, this verse was translated... Indeed, I know that it is so. Man cannot win a suit against God, taking it within the context of a judicial setting, but it changes the thrust of the of the uh, whole whole verse. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here is uh, the verb uh, tzaddik, and this means to be just or to be righteous. And uh, then I put an annotation underneath that from Halot, which is the most recent, most scholarly accepted Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. That's what Halot stands for. And it's not a so-called Christian production. I mean, this is just a, a lexicon of Hebrew that anyone would use, and it doesn't have theological uh, orientation, per se, in terms of Christian or Jewish. And Halot says that tzaddik means to be in the right or to be right in Job 9.2, specifically. So that shows that 
the Tanakh translation massages the English text so it loses the implication that's there in the original. Of course, I give you, I'm not picking on the Jewish translation here. There's numerous English translations done by Christians who manage to massage the text so that it doesn't mean what the original language uh, means at all. In the Old Testament, the masculine tzedek uh, occurs 118 times, and the feminine tzedekah occurs 156 times. So that's over 260 times that that there's a reference to righteousness or justice because the word can mean either one depending upon the context. This is the most uh, dominant word for righteousness or justice in the Old Testament. Uh, the two forms, whether it's the feminine or the masculine, don't uh, uh, differ in meaning at all. They both carry the same idea of righteousness, uh, 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 conforming to an external uh, norm or standard, an external absolute. Uh, the word is frequently used in the context of a, ju- of a courtroom uh, related to the operation of a judge, especially when it speaks of God as the supreme judge of the universe. So this whole idea of righteousness and how a human being can obtain righteousness and righteous standing before God is foundational in the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, we also see that justification is the predominant way in which the which our salvation is described. In Romans 3, back in verse... Uh, 24 uh, and, 20, and 25, 3, 325, we have reference to propitiation. Propitiation is only discussed four times in the entire New Testament. Yet that's an important doctrine. Uh, in chapter 5, we'll get into reconciliation, and reconciliation is only covered in five passages in, in the New Testament. But justification is covered in many, many more. The adjective dikaios is used 81 times in the New Testament. The noun dikaiosune for righteousness is used 92 times in the New Testament. The noun dikaiosis uh, for ju- uh, justification occurs two times. The verb dikaiao to be made or declared, I mean, to, for, to, meaning to be declared righteous, to be righteous, is used 39 times. Uh, the noun dikaioma uh, is used ten times, and the adverb dikaios is used five times. So this just shows you how pervasive this doctrine is in the New Testament. It is the foundational doctrine for understanding the application of the work of Christ on the cross. On the other side, there's another word that we've only seen one time in Romans so far in relation to the work that Christ did on the cross, and that's redemption, and there's about six or seven different Greek words for redemption, but redemption relates to the payment of a price, so that has to do more with the objective work that Christ does on the cross in terms of paying a price, whereas justification is the application of that to each individual when they uh, believe or trust in Christ, accept him uh, as their Savior. Now, looking at the Greek word, you see that the one thing all of those uh, six forms have in common is that 
the first three letters, D-I-K, many scholars believe that the original root uh, uh, word that all of these forms are built on was the Greek word D-I-K, D-I-K-E, which ha- and they believe that the root meaning going back seven or eight centuries was probably something related to custom or right, and that over time uh, they, the, these words gained a more precise meaning. And by the time you get to the first century, the focus is on rightness or justice. Uh, Leon Morris, who is a... Uh, who is a Calvinist, who is a, uh, holds pretty much a lordship salvation, uh, wrote a classic work called The Apostolic Preaching on the Cross, which we had to read at one stage when I was in seminary in a soteriology class, which was very good in his analysis of all the different words, all the different elements uh, related to the, the cross. And he makes the comment in his work that uh, this word group for righteousness uh, does not indicate something arbitrary, but something in conformity with some standard of right. The righteous man is one who is adjudged right by such a standard, and righteousness indicates a state of having attained to the standard in question. Now, last week I started off with a few comments related to Luther and Calvin and the, some of the uh, confessions, various con- Reformed confessions that were written in the uh, 16th and 17th century, and I wanted to bring in some other things because as I've talked about justification and we've covered it, I want you to understand that, that these are not definitions that I use that, that I've sort of uh, generated on my own. I want you to understand that the doctrine of justification as I have taught it is one that is grounded in the history of Christianity going back to uh, its its clear system, systematization and its articulation coming out of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, in, in the current discourse on um, justification, uh, we're, it's, it's said that we hold to the Lutheran view of justification. And that's exactly what it is. It was the view that Martin Luther articulated at the beginning of the Protestant uh, uh, Protestant Reformation. So it is simply the fact that a person is declared, he's not made righteous, he is declared righteous by the Supreme Court of Heaven because at the instant of faith alone, in Christ alone, we are given, we're imputed the righteousness of Christ. So that we don't change. It doesn't, it's not an infused righteousness. This is the idea you get in Roman Catholic uh, teaching is that you, you, righteousness is infused and it's sort of parceled out as you participate in the various sacraments. And so it's a progressive thing. It's justification and sanctification are both progressive in Roman Catholic theology. But we believe that justification happens at an instant in time when a person believes that Jesus died on the cross for them, at that instant, uh, God simultaneously imputes to the individual believer the righteousness of Christ and then declares them to be justified because they possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. It doesn't change us, but it is part, of, it is the basis for our eternal salvation. Now last time as we looked at Abraham going into 
uh, coming out of the section dealing with circumcision in verses 9 to 12, I raised the question, were Abraham's 14 tests of faith that he passed, well, he didn't pass them all, but the 14 tests of faith that God took him through, were they a cause of his justification or a result of his justification? That sounds like a trick question. I want you to think about it. It's like asking a question, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? See, we sin because we are sinners. We are born with a corrupt nature. We're fallen. We have received the imputation of Adam's original sin. And so when we come out of the womb, we are a sinner. The result is that we commit personal sins. When it comes to understanding justification and with Abraham, Abraham was first justified. Genesis 15.6 talks about a previous event in Abraham's life, as we studied the last two weeks based on the grammar, that, that sometime previous to that, when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, he believed in God, he believed God, and God imputed it, that is righteousness, to Abraham. And so the tests are tests that God brought into Abraham's life to test his faith as and to uh, encourage him to grow. He didn't pass all of them. You and I don't pass all of them. But the tests of faith that we encounter are not the and the ones that we pass are not the cause of our justification. Our justification comes when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, as we uh, think about this question that are we justified before God by faith and then the growth that occurs afterwards is is distinct from that act of justification. We'll get into this more when we get into Romans 6 and we talk about the spiritual life. But what happens in, in um, Roman Catholic theology as well as in lordship theology as well as in this new uh, perspectives of Paul theology that I've talked about a little bit, that's uh, N.T. Wright and, and the, that group. They all confuse uh, an, a sanctification that it, or justification with ongoing sanctification so that there's an overlap. So the way that you know a person is really justified is because their life's going to show it. And so they say, well, uh, they misquote the passage in Matthew uh, five that by your fruits you shall know them, and that's talking about identifying false prophets. The fruits are the words that come out of their mouth, and how do you identify a false prophet? Because his fruit, that is what he teaches, what he says, doesn't conform to Scripture. It is not a uh, uh, an inspection criteria for determining whether or not somebody is saved. Somebody is saved because they trust in Christ as Savior. They may commit mass murder afterward. They may commit any number of vile acts and offenses. They may be pedophiles. Uh, they may be thieves and robbers, and they may be extremely violent. They may not uh, keep any law. They may be completely antinomian. But if they believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, they are saved because it's not on the basis of some change in them that's the basis for salvation. It's because they possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is given to them. And as I pointed out in Romans, a major way to, our major theme in Romans, or one of the ways to express it is, how do we receive righteousness as a free gift? 
That's what Romans is all about, the reception of righteousness as a free gift, that it is not something that is worked for, it is not something uh, that is earned. So the conclusion of the section that we looked at in verses 9 through 12 states that uh, in relation to Abraham, the father of cir- he was the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, who would that be? Those who are of the circumcision. That's a way of referring to the Jewish people. He's uh, the, um, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith. That's a second category of people, those who follow Abraham in faith. That would refer to Gentiles. And the point that uh, Paul is making in verses 9 through through 12 is that circumcision did not have anything to do with Abraham's justification because he wasn't circumcised for another 15 years or so. So he is justified, well, it's 15 years after the Genesis 15 uh, 1 through 5 event, but his justification actually occurred long before that, sometime before the events of Genesis 12 1. So Abram might have been 50, 60 years of age. Uh, he could have been 30 or 40 when he was justified. But it's not until Genesis 17, when he's about 85 or 86 years of age, that he is uh, that he's circumcised, and you have the ratification of the covenant at that particular uh, particular time through the sign of circumcision. So Romans 4.12, uh, last time we looked at this, and the issue that Paul is making is circumcision should, couldn't be the cause of his justification. Now, why is all this emphasis on circumcision? The emphasis is on circumcision because at this time in Judaism, the rabbis, the Pharisees specifically, taught that if a, if a man were circumcised, then that was equivalent to becoming a, uh, a party of the covenant and he was saved. And so that's what the emphasis was at that time in history. So uh, I then took you over to, Rome, uh, to Galatians chapter Three, and briefly we went through Galatians three thirteen through eighteen, and the real focal point that I want you to remember is in three seventeen through eighteen. Remember, Galatians was Paul's first epistle. He wrote Galatians in the early fifties, probably around fifty three or fifty four uh, A.D. And this is a long time. This is several years, twelve years or so before he wrote. Romans, about 11 years before he wrote Romans. Galatians is his first clear articulation of the whole doctrine of justification by faith. And then when you get to, uh, when you get to Romans, it's, he takes every, almost everything he taught in Galatians and he's much more precise and much more detailed in the way he explains everything. But in Galatians 3.17, he concludes by saying that um, this I say, verse 17, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before uh, before by God in Christ that it should be, make the promise of no effect. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about this verse that helps us to understand what's going on in Romans 4. When Paul starts off, he says, and this I say that the law... Now, what law is he talking about? Well, it's clear from the context. He doesn't say the Mosaic law. Every time Paul 
talks about the Mosaic law, he doesn't always identify it as the Mosaic law. But how do we know he's talking about the Mosaic law here? Look at, well, look at what he says. The, the law, which was 430 years later. What law came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant? The Mosaic law. So it's obvious this is the Mosaic covenant from the context. So he says this, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. What covenant is that? That's the Abrahamic covenant that was confirmed uh, by God in Christ with Abraham. So he's, he's indicating that Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, is present in that, it, with the, the whole Trinity is present in the uh, affirmation and or the cutting of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15. And then he says uh, that it, the, the Mosaic law can't annul or can't nullify the promise. What promise is that? Well, see, the focal point as we as we are in our passage in Romans, in Romans four nine through twelve, the issue is circumcision. The claim that circumcision was enough to get you saved. But if you look at verse 13, starting there, the issue shifts to the law. So the circumcision was one aspect of the law, and then Paul change, uh, changes from just talking about circumcision. In verse 9, it's, uh, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised, only upon the uncircumcised? For we say that, uh, And then verse 10, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. I mean, that's over and over and over again. So... Then when we get down to verse 13, which is the section we're beginning to study, it begins in the English with the phrase, for the promise. And the focal point in verses 13 down through uh, 17 is on the promise. That's the key word, for the promise. You look at verse 14, for the, if those who are of the law are heirs, uh, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Verse 16, therefore, is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. So the focal point then in, in Romans 4 is talking about the promise now, and it's related to the law as a, as a whole. So Galatians 3 has these ideas there, and then in verse 18, Paul concludes by saying, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. And he, he's going to, this was written many, many years before he wrote Romans. The problem that he faced with, with the Galatians was that early in his ministry, on his first missionary journey, he and Barnabas and John Mark uh, first went to uh, Cyprus, and they went from Cyprus up to uh, the south-central part of, of uh, what is now Turkey, which was considered uh, Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, was part of the Roman Empire, and they went to uh, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, these three major major uh, towns, and then afterwards they went went back and visited the churches that they had established, and they went back to Antioch, the home church back in uh, back in Syria, and then when uh, while they're back there, this issue comes up as to just how are Gentiles related to the law. This was a major issue for the early early Christians. And so that's why Paul is writing 
this epistle to the Galatians to tell them that Gentiles are not required to come in under the law and they're not required to be uh, be circumcised. So he's dealing with the same kind of issue as he's uh, correcting the Galatians because they had been seduced by the teaching of these false teachers that have come to be known in history as Judaizers. They said, Jesus is fine, but he's not enough. You also have to get circumcised and come in under the law, basically become a Jewish proselyte, uh, or you won't really be saved. You won't have everything that God has for you. And so in verse 18, Paul says the same thing he's going to say in Romans Romans 4, that if inheritance is from the law, if you get the possession. what Now, what does this word inheritance mean? But most of you have gone through this with me before. You may not remember it because we've all uh, slept a few times since the last time we studied inheritance. But remember, in the Old Testament, uh, inheritance, which is the, the framework for understanding inheritance, inheritance doesn't have the idea of somebody dying and you read the will and you get something that's been passed down from your great-great-grandparents from generation to generation, and or you, you get whatever your, your parents had left. That's, that's not the main idea of, in, of inheritance in the Old Testament. It has to do with possession, ownership of property. And so a, pers- a person had an inheritance even if no one had died. The Israelite, that term is used a lot in relationship to the uh, a portioning of the land of Canaan that the the Jews were given individuals the different tribes were given tr- land allotments and that was their inheritance that was their possession that was their property and so that's the idea in this word is that not so much an inheritance something that you're going to get in the future because somebody dies but that this is a possession related to the promise that God made to Abraham. I'm going over this now a lot because this is the terminology and the foundation for understanding verses 13 through 17 that we're getting ready to get into in in Romans. So Paul says the same thing here in a shorter way, that if, if that inheritance, that is participation in the promise that God made to Abraham, and that promise had two, two applications. One was related to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, and the blessing, the plan that God had for them. And then the fact that that blessing that God promised to Abraham and his descendants would bless the entire world. So it has a global or worldwide uh, application to it. So the inheritance relates to that promise to Abraham. And the realization of that. And so what Paul is saying is if the inheritance is from the law, if the possession, realization of the blessings of the promise come through obedience to the Mosaic law, then it's no longer the result of promise. See, he's contrasting law and promise. A promise was the, the because the promise was the promise of a gift. Now, do you do anything to earn a gift? No. A gift is something that is freely given. It's not, there are no strings attached. I mean, if it's a real gift, there's no strings attached. It's not like one of those calls you get that say, oh, you just won a survey. We just drew your name, come out, and we're, we have a special prize for you, but you have to listen to a four-hour real estate spiel in order to get the prize. See, that's not a gift. That's, that's just uh, trying to, uh, to uh, 
bait you into coming out so they can try to sell you something. Uh, but this is a real gift. It's the gift of salvation. The promise that God is going to bless Abraham was a free gift, not based on works. It wasn't something earned. Uh, it was something that was freely given. So what Paul says in Galatians 3.18 is, if that the inheritance, the, the realization of the promise that God made to Abraham is from the law, the law is something you work for, you earn then it is no longer a promise. It's either one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. And then he says, but God gave it to it. That's the key word. That's the grace word. Uh, it's didomi in the Greek. It just means to give. It's related to, you know, etymologically related to the word for gift and giving, all, all those words related, and they all have to do with grace. It's just a free gift. God gave it to Abraham. How? By promise. So that's the key is understanding that promise, when we get into Romans and we're looking at that word promise, it's always shorthand, because it doesn't always say all of this, it's always shorthand for the promise that God gave freely to Abraham, that nothing was done to earn it. Okay, now that we've got that for background, let's look at Romans 4.13. Romans 4.13 continues the thought that that Paul's developed already. He's going to expand on it. He's going to start emphasizing promise instead of um, instead of circumcision, and he's going to be emphasizing the law rather than circumcision. That ju- that realization of the promise is from the law, not from uh, uh, instead. And earlier it was dealing with does righteousness come from uh, from circumcision. So there's, but it's connected to the previous because it begins with that initial word for. Now there's a couple of different words that in Greek that are translated for, but this is the Greek word gar, which always indicates a couple of things. Number one, it's introducing an explanation or further information about something that has already been brought into the discussion. So he's going to give a further explanation or ground for something or reason why he has said something. And so that connects it to what's gone on before. So verses 13 through 17 are further development of what he's been saying in 9 through 12. You can't just separate them as as completely different topics. Now, when we look at it in the Greek instead of the English, it has a very different word order, and that's for emphasis. And if I were to translate it in the same word order as the Greek, we would see what the emphasis is. The first phrase in the Greek is, for not through the law. So once again, you see Paul is being very emphatic here at the very beginning that this is not through the law. He doesn't start off talking about the promise. He starts off not through the law, the promise. He wants the reader to understand that it is not through the law. So that's his first statement, just as he said in Galatians uh, 3.17, for not through the law. And that explanation for makes us understand that he's continuing uh, the same line of thought. Now tonight you're really going to have to think a little bit because his logic here is really tight. I mean, when Paul gets into some of these sections here, he's just... Uh, very tight and rigorous in his use of logic. 
And so he says, for um, it's not through the, through the law. And then I went ahead and added this. This is following the Greek word order here. For not through the law, the promise that he would be the heir of the world. See, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English, but you see where he's, what he's emphasizing by the word order in the Greek. That's the thing about the Greek word order is you can take each of these phrases or clauses and you can mix them, you can mix them all up because of the syntax of Greek. It's always going to be translated the same way into English. But if you put certain phrases or clauses up front, that tells you where the emphasis is. But the meaning is still the same. It just changes the emphasis. So when we look at the top verse, which is the uh, New King James, for the, for the promise that he would be the heir, heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. See, you in the English, you just lose the emphasis. But the, what's, what does the promise say? The promise that he would be the heir of the world. Where did God promise that to Abraham in the Old Testament. Anybody have any ideas? Nowhere. Nowhere. Remember, I go back to what we've learned uh, in, in our study on how the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. There are four different ways in which the old writers of the New Testament quote from the Old Testament. The first is that you have literal prophecy, like Micah 5.2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and Matthew 2, he's born in Bethlehem. Then you have other uh, places where there's a typology, uh, where there's something that happened historically as the Jewish people were brought out of Egypt, and this is used as a type or a picture that's applied to Jesus and his family when they return to the land coming out of Egypt, also in Matthew 2. And then you have, um, uh, and that's the, just the historical statement out of Egypt. I called my people. It's not a the, the event in the Old Testament wasn't prophetic, but it's used as a type or representation, and it's then applied to Jesus. And then you have another kind of, um, uh, of Old Testament statement that is just similar to something that is happening in the New Testament, and the writer in the New Testament is applying it by virtue of principle or something of that nature. Uh, to an event that occurs in the Old Testament. And this would be uh, also, uh, the other, uh, this example also comes out of Matthew 2, that the uh, mothers of Israel wept. This is after uh, Herod killed the infants. Um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus had already escaped because they'd been warned by the, uh, by, by the angel. And so all the infants are slaughtered by, by Herod. But the quote comes out of Jeremiah. Now, when Jeremiah originally stated it, it wasn't a prophecy. He was talking about the fact that the mothers of, of, of Judah at, in 586 B.C. were weeping over the fact that their sons were being taken away as captives to Babylon and they would never see them again. So it happened uh, north of Jerusalem in Ramah. It didn't happen south like Bethlehem, which is Matthew 2. It involved uh, sons that were being taken away. They weren't being killed. So everything is different. The only thing it has in common is mothers grieving because they're not going to see their sons again. So it's a point of application. And the fourth is the one that's really interesting, and that is summary, where uh, Matthew says that G Jesus' uh, fam family, Joseph and Mary, moved back to Nazareth because... The Old Testament says he would be uh, called a Nazarene. It never says that anywhere in the Old Testament. 
But Nazarene was a kind of a negative pejorative term like, well, you know, that person's from the hills in, in uh, Arkansas. You can't expect much from them, not too bright. I'm not picking on Arkansas. Up in New England, they used to say that if somebody crossed the border into Maine, their, their IQ dropped 50 points. So you know, in Houston, maybe Pasadena, every place has some area that they don't think those people are very bright. So that's the, that's the idea, just a summary, and that's what we have here is just a summary statement uh, of, that summarizes everything that was covered in the Abrahamic covenant. God makes the covenant with Abraham, and there's three elements to it. We've, I've drilled into you many, many times that God promised a specific piece of real estate, the land, that he said there would be blessing would come through the seed, which is a term that can be either singular or plural or have a, have a uh, large meaning, distributive meaning, have the meaning of a, of a large group. Uh, his descendants, and then worldwide blessing. And this is each of these is further expanded in subsequent covenants. So God promised the land to uh, Abraham and reiterated it many times uh, in the rest of Genesis. In Genesis 12, 7, 13, verses 14 through 17, Genesis 15, 7, uh, and 18 to 21, in Genesis 17, 8, uh, God promised the, this specific piece of real estate to Abram. Then in the seed, in terms of the descendant, Genesis 12.2, Genesis 13.16, Genesis 15.5, Genesis 17.4 through 6, uh, Genesis, and uh, as well as 17.16 to 20, Genesis 18.18, 18, uh, tw- uh, 22.17 was a promise of the seed. And then uh, the promise of worldwide blessing in Genesis 12:3, 18, 18, and Genesis 22:18. All of those—that's the promise. Now, what the, the the phrase that we have here, that Abraham would be the heir of the world. Now, we just talked about inheritance. So, what does heir mean? Heir means ownership. He's the one who owns something. Did Abraham ever own the land? No. Never did. He was a traveler the whole time. Uh, he was a sojourner, the scripture says. But he's going to not only have ownership in the land, in the kingdom, but it says here he's going to own the world. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, by the time you get into, into later passages in the Old Testament, and there are a number of passages that speak of the future ownership and uh elevation of rulership of Israel, the elevation of priority over all the nations. Uh, Psalm 2, 7 through 12, the Messiah is going to come back and rule over all the all the nations. Also, uh, other passages, there are passages like Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Um, you can see those up on the screen. Psalm, I'll just read them in case somebody's just listening to the audio. Psalm 22, 27 to 28. Psalm 47, 7 through 9, Psalm 72, 8 through 11 and 17, Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, Isaiah 19, 18 through 25, Isaiah 49, 6 through 7, Isaiah 52, uh, 7 through 10, Isaiah 55, 3 through 5, Isaiah 66, 23, Amos 9, 11 and 12, Zechariah 3, 9 and 10, and Zechariah 14, 9. All these Old Testament passages speak of, of Israel at the forefront 
the foremost nation in the millennial kingdom. Now, in Second Temple Judaism, Second Temple period is the period that begins with the um, uh, return of the Jews after the uh, after the exile. In, in 538, and they rebuild the temple in 516 uh, under Zechariah the prophet at that time. And then, they, then after that, not long after that, by 440, uh, the Old Testament canon is closed. And there's this silence from 440 to uh, until the New Testament period in the beginning of the first century. And it is that period is called the Second Temple Period. And during that time, that was when the Apocrypha was written and uh, various books in the Apocrypha, and they have value not spiritually, doctrinally, but they tell us a lot about what went on during that time period. They tell us a lot about the history. They tell us a lot about the uh, Maccabean Revolt. They tell us a lot about what went on with Antiochus Epiphanes and a lot of other things. And in Second uh, Second Temple Judaism, uh, they understood, they sort of synthesized all of the Abrahamic promises into this idea that Israel was going to rule the world under the Messiah and that Israel would uh, basically be the heir of the whole earth. And this is seen in a couple of passages in uh, one of the apocryphal books, Jubilees. And in Jubilees 22.14, it states, uh, May he cleanse thee from all unrighteousness and impurity, speaking of Israel, that during the, it's speaking, looking forward to the time of the kingdom. Uh, that there would be a time of total cleansing, that thou mayest be forgiven of all the transgressions which thou hast committed ignorantly, and may he strengthen thee and bless thee. And look at the last line. And mayest thou inherit the whole earth. See, this is, this is written about 250 to 300 B.C. So they're synthesizing, summarizing the Abrahamic covenant as that Israel will inherit or rule the whole earth. Another passage in the Jubilees is Jubilees 32 19, and if you just look at the last line that I've underlined there, that they shall get possession of the, there's that idea of possession, ownership, inheritance, heirship. They shall get possession of the whole earth and inherit it forever. Okay, so this idea that Paul, when Paul speaks of Abraham being the heir of the whole world, this is a, a term that summarizes the fulfillment, the real full realization of all of the Abrahamic uh, promises and all of the Abrahamic blessings. And so this applies to Abraham, even though you don't have a specific statement in the Old Testament. This was clearly understood uh, by Jewish readers at that particular uh, particular time. This concept of being an heir of the world is going to be further developed in, in about four verses down. If you look down to verse 17, uh, it's a quote from Genesis uh, 17, Five, as it is written, I have made you, God is speaking to Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. That, that idea that Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish people, but on the basis of following him, his faith, he's the father of all those Gentiles and Jews alike who follow him in faith, that... Um, that there's this connection between being the heir of the world, that's all the nations, and that he's the father of many nations. So those ideas are connected together, and Paul ties them together uh, in this particular passage. 
So verse 13, he says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. The promise, why? Because a promise was a gift. A promise was a promise that God gave to Abraham. So that means it's not through the law, but it is through the righteousness of faith. So what, what Paul is saying is that the promise is not going to be realized by the law, by observing the ceremonies of the law or by observing the morality of the law. Now, the reason I'm making that distinction is because there are those, as I mentioned before, those who are coming along followers of this uh, Anglican, a former Anglican bishop, now head of the theology department at one of the uh, uh, seminaries in Scotland, uh, N.T. Wright, and there have been a couple of doctrinal churches where we have we know people, we have family members there who have been seduced by this error and teaching this false view of justification. And justification, uh, when Paul says that we're not justified by the works of the law, he's not making this kind of division that N.T. Wright says he is that it's it's okay to be moral, but he, Paul was just uh, rejecting the uh, Jewish nationalism of, of that day, which was the idea of circumcision or, or a ritual, uh, ritual purity, uh, I mean the ritual observance. Paul is rejecting all of the law. There's nothing that you can do in the law that can gain righteousness so that the promise comes by faith alone through the righteousness of faith, the righteousness that comes by believing in Jesus Christ and receiving the imputation of his righteousness. So then we come to verse 14. How does verse 14 begin? For if those who are of the law are heirs, he uses a the, the same particle for, the same word for, it's a further explanation. I was going to give a little illustration from some uh, uh, logic here. And he uses a first-class condition because he's assuming this first part is true. If those who are of the law are heirs, we're going to assume it's true, that you become an heir through the law. If that's true, he's saying, then faith is made void and the promise made to no effect. Why? Because law and gift are mutually exclusive. Working for something is the law. Being freely given something is the promise. They're mutually exclusive. And so if those of the law are heirs, then that just wipes out uh, faith and promise. They're they're not necessary. Verse 14, I tried to break the logic down something like this. Uh, First of all, his, his main assumption is that if heirship, this is the position of his opponents, uh, that heirship is, comes through the law, if you're going to benefit from the blessing of the promise, if that comes through the law, then faith is nullified and so is promise. They're, they're irrelevant. They're no longer significant, necessary, or important. Then what he indicates, he's not really saying this, but this is embedded within his logic, since neither faith nor promise have been nullified, right? Everybody's emphasizing faith and promise. So since that's not obviously nullified, the promise then must not be through the law. That that He doesn't state that, but that's the implication of his logic. Since faith 
and promise are both important still, then the promise uh, must not come through the law. So his conclusion, in his conclusion, the contrast Paul has been making is between righteousness by law and righteousness by faith. This is from Romans 3.27 down to uh, 4.8. So his ultimate conclusion is that if the promise, if the blessing comes by law, then neither faith or promise have any significance. So quit talking about it. But everybody talks about faith and promise. So if you're going to talk about faith and promise, then you have to, then, then you have to recognize by virtue of the embedded logic here that law is no longer, longer relevant. So verse 14 states, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, the promise made to no effect. Why? Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Ah, now I just caught you. You did the same thing I did. When you read that verse, what you thought you read and what you thought you heard was where there is no law, there's no sin. But sin and transgression are completely different ideas. Paul's not saying where there's no law, there's no sin. He's saying where there's no law, there's no transgression because the word that is translated there. Uh, for transgression is a word that means a violation or transgression of the law. So that's the point that he's made. Where there's no law, there's no transgression of the law. He's not saying there's no sin. That's a different concept. So let's look at verse 15 again. What, is, what exactly is he getting at here? That's a difficult verse to understand. What's interesting is a lot of theologians and commentators just ignore it. He says the reason that, th- that, that if the promise comes by the law, the reason it invalidates faith and promise is because the law brings wrath. Now let's just talk about that a minute. The law brings wrath because the law cannot be obeyed. Not one person can fully obey the law. When you violate the law, you're going to bring wrath. Now what does the word wrath mean? We go back to the first chapter of Romans where I showed you that throughout Romans, this term wrath doesn't refer to end time, uh, etern- eternality in the lake of fire. That what wrath refers to is the judgment or divine discipline of God on people who are disobedient to him in, in time, in history. So the, the law brings about wrath because when we disobey the law, God's going to discipline or bring judgment upon a, upon people who have failed to obey the law. And then he, his next point is, if there's no, no law, then there's no violation of the law. His key point, though, is very simple. That is, the promise is for those who obtain it by faith alone in Christ alone, because all that the law is going to get you is disobedience and judgment from God and discipline. The law can't, is not designed to bring blessing. The law was designed to show you that we can't obey the law, and when we don't obey the law, the result is divine discipline and judgment. And that brings him to his conclusion in verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. This is his tremendous conclusion here. It is of faith that it might be according to grace. If it's not a faith, then it violates grace. The phrase according to grace means according to a standard, and the standard is God's grace. 
So faith is related to grace. Law is related to works. Faith is related to grace. Therefore, it is from faith. What is the it? There's actually no statement of a subject here. It's probably the promise or the blessing of the promise comes from faith so that it might be according to the standard of grace so that the promise might be sure or certain or confirmed to all the seed. That's going to be the Jewish seed that responds by faith as Abraham did and to those who are non-Jews. That's why we have this next phrase, not only to those who are of the law. Who would that refer to? That would refer to the Jews. But not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So he's using those two phrases to contrast the uh, the Jew, Jews who were given the law and the Gentiles who were not given the law but follow Abraham on the basis of faith, and then a, a reference to Abram's fatherhood of all the all believers at the end of the verse. So we just have a second, so I want to give you some observations on grace. First of all, grace is based on God's character. Whenever you're gracious to somebody, you shouldn't base it on your character. You need to base it on God's character because your character is still not so hot, on, even on a good day. Same with me. So we always, when we have to love someone as Christ loved the church, we, we still need to base that on God's love, not on whatever has developed within us. It has to be based on a certain foundation. So grace is always based on God's character, and it's specifically based upon his love. Second point is that grace, though, is not an attribute of God. Love's the attribute. Grace is an expression of of that attribute. Now, that's important to understand because sometimes people get the idea that God has to deal with us in grace. God doesn't have to do anything with any creature in grace. He did not deal with with Satan or or the fallen angels in grace. There's no redemption solution for the fallen angels. There was no plan of salvation. He doesn't deal with them in grace. He, he chose to deal with human beings in grace. That's point three. Grace is a volitional act by God toward his creature. There's not a necessity in God that he has to, to be true to himself, deal with his creatures in grace. It's an expression of his love. He has to be loving, but he doesn't have to treat everyone the same in grace because grace is different for everybody. It's not identical to everybody. In common grace, uh, God brings a rain on the uh, on the rich and the poor and the believer and the unbeliever, the righteous and the wicked alike. But some righteous don't get as much rain as other righteous, especially if you're in Houston. And some wicked get more rain than other wicked. So God's grace is it's it's not like his other. It's not an attribute. It's an expression of an attribute. That's what I'm trying to get across. Um, Fifth point, grace is also also contrasted with works in Scripture. We see it both here in Romans 4 earlier, uh, verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or imputed for righteousness. And, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're saved uh, by grace through faith and not by works, 
lest any man should boast. So the one who works deserves a reward or a wage, but grace is a gift, something that is undeserved, unmerited, and freely given. A pro- the promise was based on, was a promise that was freely given to Abraham. And then sixth, grace completely negates or removes any human contribution. If you try to do any little thing, one-half of one-tenth of one percent of works wipes out grace completely. It's all or nothing. It's all relying upon God's grace. That's the Reformation watchword what phrase was sola gratia, grace alone. Faith alone, you don't add anything to faith in Christ alone, it's not faith in Christ and the church, faith in Christ and works or anything else, and it's by grace alone. Those three have to be alone. Okay, next time we'll come back and we'll get into Romans, um, get into the next verse where we get into verse, uh, I think, 17 or 16. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to work our way through this important topic that we can have a more clear understanding of your grace, of how we are justified, of how we are uh, rendered righteous, declared righteous, so that we can stand in your presence, so that we can be saved, so that we can have eternity with you, that it's not based on anything whatsoever that we have done, but completely and totally based upon what you have given us. And for that, the only response can be our gratitude and our desire to express that gratitude to you through our devotion and loyalty and desire to serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.